All right, if you would, go to Psalm 133 this morning. Psalm 133. And we're going to be dealing with the subject this morning of dwell together in unity. Dwell together in unity. Psalm 133 is a very short psalm. You'll see it's only three verses long. Uh, But I will say that the words in which David penned here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are certainly profound words. Uh, They are words that uh, really ought to join our hearts and minds into considering uh, whether these things apply to us. Are we living these principles? Do we understand uh, what the Lord really is teaching us here? So I'm going to read this psalm, and then we'll begin looking at this psalm this morning. Beginning there in verse number 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. This psalm truly sets forth the blessed condition of those who are saints. It sets forth not only the condition of those who are blessed, but it sets forth the very real communion and the very real union that brethren have in Christ. Uh, It expresses this union, this communion, uh, and there is a difference between union and communion. It's interesting that those words contain the word union, but they are different. To be in unity, to be in union with, Uh, to be in communion with. Uh, You could not have communion without union. And this really expresses the communion and unity of the brethren by comparing it to a holy perfume. Now, this might seem a bit strange to us in our society, our day and age. Uh, This is not something we commonly are uh, familiar with. We don't talk a lot about holy perfume or in this case, anointing oils. But this expression that's being given here, this expression of this oil, uh, the psalmist David is comparing the unity of the brethren to precious ointment, ointment that has been poured out. And he gives an illustration of the ointment that's been poured out upon the head of Aaron. And we're going to look at why this is so substantial and why this is of such uh, great value. Uh, the, the head of Aaron, of course, as we've learned and we'll learn a little bit more today, uh, Aaron was the high priest. And throughout Scripture, he is also uh, determined to be a type of Christ. Not Christ, but a type of Christ. And it's described that this anointing oil, this holy perfume, runs down from the very top of his head, down his beard, and then expresses that it goes all the way down the skirts of his garment. And then David gives us another comparison. He says that this is also similar, this union, this communion, is similar to the dew of Hermon. And as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, 
even life forevermore. This dew of Hermon we'll deal with a bit this morning as well. Uh, This dew that, again, we probably take that for granted uh, every spring and maybe uh, sometimes in the summer when we arise and we're up in the morning and we look out on the the grass or onto the lawn and we we see this moisture that's on the grass, that's on the lawn, and we, we probably think nothing of it. But this dew that is referred to as the dew of Hermon was so abundant and it was so uh, magnificent that it would cause the streams and cause it to run downhill and it would pour out a blessing on those that were at the foot of that, uh, of that mount. So it was abundant. And it says that these things, this dwelling together, is compared to the Lord commanding a blessing and life forevermore. Most of us don't think about the reality of the dew in the mornings is actually giving life to that lawn. It's giving life to that whatever it is upon. And so this picture of the anointment, the anointing of the head of Aaron, and this picture of the dew, they are very instructive uh, words here. Uh, It has been said, Spurgeon put this beautifully. He said, when brethren can do, can and do dwell together in unity, then is their communion worthy to be sung of in the Psalms. Spurgeon, and some of you maybe have read, and if you do not have it, I would encourage you to get a copy of the Treasury of David. Uh, I do consult it for a lot of my, when I study for the Psalms, but even for devotional reasons. Uh, The Treasury of David was Spurgeon's exposition of all 150 Psalms, and it is deep exposition. It is deep and practical and doctrinal, and he also gives insight from other preachers and teachers, and it gives this very beautiful picture. But remember, when we study the Psalms, we are studying those things that were meant to be sung. Um, I don't know if we even think about this. When we sing together, um, it is not just a time to fill the time. Uh, it is to be sung together. We're singing in unison. Now, uh, this is kind of a sidelight just to kind of share this with you. There's a reason why all of our singing is congregational. It's done intentionally. It's done so that this congregation is, it is defining and it's showing us a picture of what union and communion looks like. We're singing in unison. We're singing together. We're singing the same words. We're singing with like-mindedness. We're singing with hopefully a heart that is in one accord. We're singing words hopefully that we understand. Uh, It is impossible for an unbeliever to fully understand the depth and the value of the Psalms or the hymns. But when you sing as a believer, you're singing something that is indeed a beautiful thing. And when we sing together, when we pray together, when we hear the Word of God preached together, when we fellowship together, when we do life together, the beauty of it is unity. Those things done without unity are without value. And what Spurgeon was saying about this psalm, he was saying very clearly that when brethren can dwell, there's a, they, they can dwell in unity, but he added that when they are doing unity, when they are dwelling in unity, when they actually do it, 
This is the beauty that you get. This is the beauty of this dwelling together. Now, you'll notice that this particular psalm is titled A Song of Degrees of David. And it really is in the middle of the psalms where these song of degrees begin. And really, David is describing what unity is. Now, unity just for the sake of peace is not true unity. In other words, there's this idea in our society today that says what we really need is peace. What we really need in our churches is peace. We need peace that's based upon truth, not peace that's based upon compromising just to say we're unified. Unity is something that can only be based upon that which is true. The unity of the truth. So you'll notice here that in order to understand truth and to understand what the truth is, we have to understand that truth is always based upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done as the head. So this first heading I want us to look at, and these are very simple headings this morning. And the verse 1 shows us the brethren in unity. It's important to understand that only brethren can be in true unity. Now we as a church, uh, hopefully, uh, we do not and will not turn away someone who comes in who is an unbeliever, who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, We are going to welcome them and we're going to say, we want you to come into this place and we want you to hear the word of God. We want you to be converted. We want you to be saved. But it is impossible for an unbeliever to dwell with the brethren in unity. Now, they might be very good, moral, upstanding people. But what unity is in Scripture is a unity, and that's why David begins by saying, brethren. This is not brethren by family relation. This is brethren by headship, the headship of Christ, the headship of Almighty God. So that starts off with brethren. So it's very important that we understand that the brethren are those who are in Christ, the elect of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of all the saints. We have to get that right as a believer and we have to get that right as a church. We have to get the headship of Christ right before we'll get the church right. Before we'll get the church to the place to understand that there is no man, no person, no other human being in a local church, for example, who is the actual head of the saints or is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. When he spoke with, the, with, with Peter, he did not say, I'm going to build your church, Peter, but I'm going to build my church. And my church, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. Even from the very beginning, Jesus had in mind that his people would be dwelling together in unity. As Christ is the head, our first relationship then is not to each other, but our first relationship is our relationship and our unity and our union with Christ. So your first relationship as a believer today is not, first of all, to this church. It's your unity to Christ. That's where it begins. Uh, A person can join a local church, but their unity begins with Christ Jesus. They're, they're, They're united together 
To be united to Christ means that you are one in him. He is not just someone you're familiar with. You are actually united with him. You are actually in fellowship with him. There's actually a standing relationship. It is not something that is just figurative. To be saved, to be converted, is to have union with Christ, a very real union, which leads to the reality of a communion fellowship. When you are one with Christ, when I am one with Christ, Christ is our life. The Apostle Paul made that very clear. Christ is not just a part of your life. He is your life. He is your life above everything else. Christ is also described as not only being our life, but our light. The reason we see in the dark is because Christ is our light. He is our holiness. He is our righteousness. Our righteousness is not based upon our own works, our own merits, but on his righteousness. He is our sacrifice. Christ Jesus sacrificed himself for the body of Christ. I don't believe there's anything that disturbs the church more and probably disturbs Christ more than disunity in his body. And sometimes churches will just get all up in arms about things and they will very quickly say, well, I have my rights, you have your rights. Uh, there are no rights in the body of Christ. The rights are Jesus Christ is my head. And if Christ is our head, it is he who we are pleasing and he is who we are submitting to because he is our sacrifice. Nobody in a local church sacrificed their life, gave down and laid down their life for the sheep. Nobody is shedding blood for the cause of Christ, but he did. He is our sacrifice. He's also our purity. He's our perfection. Ultimately, all these things mean he is our salvation. We are all one in him. So this morning, if you are a believer in Christ, we are all one in him. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul was writing about in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just turn over there quickly this morning. We're, we're going to be very uh, methodical uh, in this journey through this uh, principle. But in Ephesians chapter number 4, Paul is, is dealing with this principle of unity. Now, what he is describing is not how you accomplish unity, this is important, but what unity looks like. Oftentimes we look at Scripture and we try to say, if we do this, this, and this, if we do point one, two, and three, we'll have unity. What Paul is actually writing about is writing what unity actually looks like being lived out. Ephesians 4, Paul writes these words, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. When we understand the desire for unity, and we understand the heart of God 
and what Paul was writing about. Paul was not writing this as just something offhanded to consider when you have the time. He spoke to that body of believers and he said, endeavor to keep this unity. Endeavor to stay upon these troops. Unity is meek. Unity is humble. Unity is something that is not self-serving. It's not self-seeking. Unity is one body, one faith, one God, one Father, all in Him. It's hard for us to understand this, but there is not a single individual in this room today when it comes to Christ. Now, we are individual people. God made it that way. But in the body of Christ, there's not individuals. There is this common unity. Now, yes, our humanity is there. Yes, we are unique people. But if we're in Christ, we are one in Him. That's the beauty of unity. The beauty of the brethren in unity, this brethren in unity that that David's now writing about in Psalm 133, is explaining to us that when we are united by this command, we're united by the gospel. The gospel puts us into what we now refer to as the church state or to be in this assembly. The church then becomes the very avenue, the very conduit in which this oneness, this unity is demonstrated. We do a great disservice to the unbelieving world when the unbelieving world sees a church in disarray and sees a church that is split. Because if those people can't get this right, if the church can't get unity right, and not just our church, if the church as a whole can't get unity right, who can? You don't really expect the world to be in unity, do you? You don't really expect that one day we're going to wake up and every news outlet's going to report? That every world, every country, every nation, every people is now at perfect peace and in unity. It is not going to happen. And you say, well, that's a very pessimistic outlook, preacher. It is impossible for unbelievers to dwell in unity. You know, it's interesting that this word unity does not appear very many times in Scripture. We would think that the word unity would appear everywhere, but it doesn't. We have it here in Psalm 133, and we have what we just read in Ephesians. But the principles of unity are all throughout Scripture. Another example, you don't have to turn there, is the Apostle Paul also exhorted the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He said, now I beseech you, brethren. Notice again, he was not talking to an unbeliever. He was talking to the believers. And he said, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Do you hear the the similarity here? Same, same, same. The same thing. No division. Perfectly joined together. Same mind, same judgment. That's what unity looks like. Without what Paul has exhorted us to, and without what David is exhorting us to, it would be impossible for us as saints to have any sort of communion. 
sometimes we like to commune before there's actually unity. We can get very good at communing together and coming together for certain things, but really at the heart of it all, they're not the same mind. They're not of the same judgment. They're not walking together with the same heart. Communion cannot be mistaken for union and unity. Someone can claim to have communion with Christ and not even be united with Him. Salvation is not just a, pray that, not just a prayer that you pray. It's actual union. You're actually in unity with Him. This brethren in unity is a very beautiful thing. It is the very, pardon the expression, it is the glue that is holding together the gospel church. If I stood up here week after week and proclaimed and preached the gospel to a church who is completely in disunity, it would not be pleasing to God. Now, that preacher, if it's me or someone else, could stand and say, well, at least the word of God is going forth. Whether we're in union or not, it really doesn't matter. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. Folks, you realize that most of the epistles and most of the letters that Paul wrote to were being written to the churches with the understanding that he was writing to brethren. He wasn't primarily, again, hear me out, he wasn't primarily evangelistic in his writing as much as he was driving home the reality of how you should have a same mind, same judgment, same heart, one God, one Lord, one Father, one Spirit among you. Because it's in that beauty that the gospel truly goes forth. Imagine trying to go out and speak to people about their soul and speak to them about Christ when you have and I have no desire for unity in my own church. It's just a tough word to say. It's quite hypocritical. I would be a hypocrite to be in a disunion with you and to say, well, at least I'm getting the gospel out. This principle of unity, and David even calling on others to take view of this union and communion of the saints, that's what this word behold means. It means to take a very close look. Now notice how he describes this. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Notice the Bible does not say how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. No, in unity, it's good and pleasant. Now you can apply this even to a home. Husbands and wives can dwell together and not be in unity. Mothers and fathers can dwell with their children and not in unity. And we could say, for the sake of argument, we could say, well, at least, at least we're dwelling together. Is that really what it means? At least we're dwelling together? No, David's very clear to make sure that we understand that the pleasantness and the goodness is found when we actually dwell together in unity. That's where the beauty is. When we think about good and we think about that which is pleasant, sometimes things are good. Again, listen very carefully. Sometimes things are good, but they're not pleasant. 
It is possible to have something that's good that isn't pleasant. But this word, behold, David has in mind here that this is something that you do not often see. It's the characteristic of real saints dwelling together. The word behold also has a suggestion. It's something that you ought to inspect for yourself. It's something that you ought to strongly consider. It is worthy of your time. It is worthy of your admiration. Stop what you're doing. Gaze upon it. Consider it. Ponder. Think about it. Pray about it. Because this, God looks on with approval. Now, anytime you see that word behold in Scripture, that's what it means. It doesn't mean, behold, let's run to the next thought. No, behold, here's what you need to do. Consider what's getting ready to be said. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now here's one thing our humanity is not capable of fully comprehending. We are not capable of actually explaining or measuring the exceeding excellence of being in this condition. In other words, it's impossible for us to fully understand what David is saying, how good and pleasant this is. But yet, we are, as we examine it, look at how he uses the word how twice. How good and how pleasant. Now again, we think, what's the significance of the word how being used twice? Number one, he's not attempting. David is not in any way, shape, or form attempting to measure how good or how pleasant this is. Does everybody understand what I mean by that? He's not saying, I'm going to give you a comparison of how good it is and compare it to something earthly and how pleasant it is by giving you something that's earthly in the sense that we fully understand it. But he is going to give us the example of the holy perfume and the ointment that's going to be poured upon Aaron's head and the dew that comes off of Hermon. Things that you and I are not personally experienced in. I don't think any of you have ever been probably anointed with holy perfume that's run down from the top of your head, down your beard, onto your garments. I don't think we fully comprehend this. David is not trying to tell us to say the important matter here is to measure how good it is or measure how pleasant it is. Instead, he's commanding us to look at it. Behold it. When John the Baptist stood and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He wasn't trying to get us to measure this. He wanted us to look and consider what is being said. We are to behold it for ourselves. The combination of the words good and pleasant is a remarkable combination of what we'll call and understand as two descriptive words. For a thing to be good, truly good, is one thing. But for it to be good and pleasant is even better. Something's good is good, but something that's good and pleasant is even better. People love pleasant things. The Bible teaches man loves pleasure. Pleasure is a pleasant thing. 
There's pleasure in sin for a season, is there not? Is that what the scripture teaches? That's a pleasant thing. You say, I never thought about sin as pleasant. That's an example of how something can be pleasant, but that doesn't mean it's good. Yet we often frequently see that pleasure is often evil, but here the condition is set apart by the word good, good and pleasant. The good is qualifying the pleasant. I hope I'm not making that confusing. Because if he just simply said, behold, how pleasant it is. See, when we see the word good in Scripture, remember our definition of good means something that's under great. But when the Lord Jesus Christ himself used the word good, when he was talking to the rich young ruler, he said, why do you call, why do you call me good? Because the rich young ruler didn't even know what he was really calling him. Because in the eyes of Jesus Christ, good means perfect. The, percept, the perfect perfection of what that man needed. And he's telling him, why would you call me good? You don't even really know who I am. So this good and pleasant, a qualifying word. For brethren now, think about this. For brethren, according to the flesh, are to dwell together. Sometimes when we're dwelling together in the flesh, our flesh is ruling and our flesh is making all the decisions. Here's the problem we're always going to have with unity. Our flesh and our humanity. Two things you cannot put totally off. Unity is most often disrupted by the flesh and by our humanity. It's not an outside third party force. It's our own flesh. It's our own humanity. I feel like. I don't like. I don't want. This makes me. You make me. He's not writing about something that is something you can just create. I could not stand up, and I, pray, and I, I am so thankful to be able to say this. I don't look out at our church and say, I see a church that is not in unity. Often people say, when you preach a sermon like this or you teach something, you're teaching something because you have a problem right now. That's not why I'm doing this. That's not why I'm talking about unity today. This is more of a guard against the breaking of that unity because our flesh is so tempted to break it. And when he talks about, he's asking us to do something that's nearly impossible. For humans to dwell together is a difficult thing. But sometimes, you know, it would be better to, to not dwell together, to not be together, if sin was the very thing holding that unity. Think about Abraham and Lot. Abraham did not try to convince Lot to stay. He looked at Lot and you, he said, you take whatever, whatever way you want to go. You take whatever plane you want. Now, what was Abraham doing? He wasn't promoting unity at that point. He was promoting a peaceful resolution to that problem. And we know what Lot's decisions were. Lot's decisions led him to take the well-watered plain. His flesh told him, the best place for me to go is to go to the place that looks the most abundantly blessed right now. And we know the sad story of Lot. Right? We know the story. 
The eyes of Lot, his flesh told him, the way I should go is that way because that's where all the pleasant things are. That's where all the good is. Yet Lot went there and lost his whole family. So for brethren to dwell together. It's not by the flesh. Think about Joseph's brothers. You want to read a sad story of sibling rivalry? Read that story. Read the story about how Joseph is told to go tell his brothers. Here's the young Joseph telling his brothers, and I'm, I'm obviously, I, I don't mean to disrespect the scripture. I'm, I'm generalizing, paraphrasing this. He tells his brothers, basically, one day, all of you are going to bow down and worship me. Imagine one of your younger siblings coming to the older and say, hey, you know what? One day you're going to worship me. And then he got even more bold and he even, he even basically looks at his own father and says, so are you. Joseph's brothers are so filled with envy and hate because their father seemed to be showing Joseph favorite, playing favorites with him. They put a plot together to kill him. But this is family. Doesn't natural blood relations and doesn't a natural common denominator between us, between us automatically mean we have unity? Absolutely not. There's no guarantee that when you walk into a church, for example, that that church is in unity and will stay there. I've mentioned this. I've been in churches that there is not unity and it is horrific. You can feel it. You can feel it not in some weird mystical sense. You can sense it and see it in the believers. You can see it in the people that are there. You can see that something's not right. Sometimes there's sin in the camp and other times it is just a matter of people not understanding this oneness. This Spurgeon quote that I gave you to begin with he compared this communion worthy of singing the Psalms. Brethren should be united in one heart and in one mind towards him. These are brethren dwelling together. It is a pleasant sight. It's lovely to observe. It's good in its own nature. As we're going to see over the coming weeks, it is not only good in its nature, but it is accompanied with many blessings. It is good and pleasant. Where unity should most abundantly and most clearly be seen is in the body of Christ. That's, that's where we should get our picture of unity. Folks, let me just share, let me just share again my heart with you. I am so, so concerned about our children, our young people. I want them to see week after week, service after service, fellowship after fellowship. I want them to see believers in unity and I want them, I want them to see this is what a loving Christ supremely looks like. I don't want them to see we have the biggest and best of everything in our church. We have the most exciting speakers. I'm going to tell you what, kids, children can see disunity. Mom and dad, they can see it in you. Grandparents, they can see it in you. 
and you don't have to say anything to them, they know something is not right in that relationship. While all of us adults sit and talk about what's going on, what's wrong, our kids are looking back and saying, I just know something's not right. And you know what, they are, you know what they're understanding? They're understanding those, that relationship is somehow broken. It's not what it's supposed to be. When unity is broken, it's supposed to be a light, not darkness. It is of great benefit to the church, not socially, not some prosperity gospel type thing, not a blessing that says, hey, if we, if we get this unity thing right, we're going to get this check in the mail for $100,000 and we did everything right. Woo, God's blessing our church. You understand that there are churches in harm's way this morning that are dodging bombs, that are in unity and in prosperity and don't have a dime to their name. They don't have a dime in their bank. They don't even have a bank account. I saw a quote today from a Ukrainian pastor. He said, I'm going to stand up and preach the gospel tomorrow if the church is still, that I preach is still standing, but I'm going to preach. He had no idea if that place was going to be there, but he said, We're going to, I'm going to go and preach if that, if that building's still standing or if I'm even still here. Folks, unity and blessing of unity is not measured by dollar, dollar amounts in our bank account, by the prosperity of our families. This unity is measured as spiritual. I want to introduce this principle. I know we're I'm a little bit over this morning, but I want to introduce this principle because I want, you to, I want you to really think on this. Notice the three words. It's verse 2. It is like. Now, we sometimes are really quick to run to a conclusion. And very clearly, it is like. In other words, this isn't something we're supposed to be commanded to try to replicate. In other words, I'm not going to come next week and say, okay, for, for the illustration of what we're being commanded to do here, I've got this jar of holy oil, and we're going to pour it on someone's head, and we're going to watch it drip down, and we're going to watch what it does. And if we'll do that, then we're going to be the picture of this unity. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is like it's almost like an Old Testament parable. I know we often say, well, the parables don't really show up until Jesus teaches parables in the New Testament. That's really not true. There are parables all throughout the Old Testament. But it is a parable that is demonstrating a real-life thing that did take place. You realize Aaron was actually anointed with oil. Aaron, actually, this process does happen, and it did happen, and it was a picture of something. He said, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Under the Old Testament, kings, prophets, and priests were anointed with oil. They were anointed with oil as a demonstration and an inauguration, if you will, into their office. So those prophets, those priests, those kings would be anointed with oil. 
It was kind of the, this is, this is showing the approval of, and this is the beginning of their office, prophet, priest, or king. But Aaron is mentioned specifically, and don't miss this. It is Aaron that's mentioned, not some other prophets, not other priests, but Aaron that is mentioned because Aaron is referred to because he was the most immediate type of Christ or the most like Christ. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard. The Lord himself commanded this to be done. If you'll look with me quickly at Exodus chapter 30, Again, this unity that we're trying to demonstrate here from Scripture is not found in three points in a poem. It's actually demonstrated in how the Scripture is using these things. Exodus 30, look at verse 22. Moreover, this is the commandment of this anointing oil. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil olive, a hen. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy anointment, or holy ointment, an ointment compounded, or compound, after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. And thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith, the ark of the testimony, the table and all his vessels, the candlestick and his vessels, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all his vessels, and the laver and his foot. And thou shalt sanctify them that they may be most holy. Whatsoever toucheth them shall be holy. And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall ye make any other like it. After the composition of it, it is holy, and it shall be holy unto you." So Moses, according to the divine command of God, composes this holy oil or ointment of pure myrrh, sweet cinnamon, sweet calamus, cassia, and olive oil. He says it is described as being compounded after the art of an apothecary. And on the day of consecration, Moses was to pour this oil upon Aaron's head. As he's anointed with it, it would run down from his head, down on his neck, or down to the collar of his coat. This was a figure of the anointing of our great high priest, Christ Jesus. John in his epistle says, we have an unction from the Holy One. This perfume was also said with those ingredients, those spices, those cinnamons, is that this had a most pleasant smell and perfume to it. In other words, this was not an oil that was rancid. This was not an oil that was bad smelling. This was something that was a sweet smelling savor unto God. The Apostle Paul makes mention of being a sweet smelling savor to God in the New Testament. 
The connection is amazing. What was happening here is that scent was good and pleasant to the sense of smell. It was something that would be acceptable. It was something that we would say, now that has a glorious smell to it. That has something that, 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 that is, it gets my approval. One of the most, just kind of a strange illustration, one of the most awful places to go into for me is a candle shop. And it's not because there are not good scents in there. The problem is they're all together. And it's like somebody set off a candle bomb in there. Two minutes in there and I'm like, I have got to get out of here. Because it's not sweet smelling to me. It's not pleasant. It's not good. But yet he says this oil, again, what's the context of the psalm? Unity. When brethren are dwelling together in unity, it is a sweet smelling, acceptable, approved scent. In probably the least read book of the Bible, and I would encourage you, if you've been avoiding the Song of Solomon because you've been told a lot of wrong things about that book, your next devotional studies or studies, study the book Song of Solomon. Don't ignore that book. The beauty of the wording in there, and when you truly understand the context and the intent of that book, you're going to say to yourself, why did I spend all these years avoiding it? Because the beauty is there. In Song of Solomon, in Solomon chapter 1, verse 3, Solomon says this, Thy name is an ointment poured forth. It is a most acceptable ointment. The unity among the brethren of Christ is good. It is pleasant. It's perfuming. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. Folks, there was nothing more pleasant, there was nothing more good than the unity under Jesus Christ as the head. I hope, I hope we understand that whether you are a part of this church for a long time or part of a church new, you realize that the beauty of gathering together is not just the fact that we're all in the same room together, we're all in the same building together. The beauty is the unity. The beauty is that we are doing it and living as a sweet-smelling savor unto Christ Jesus, which means we do things that are acceptable to Him. Just like that anointment, that ointment that came down and ran down Aaron's head and down his beard. All of the grace that we receive comes from Christ. And it comes down from Him it's poured upon the head of His church. You realize that that ointment is poured upon the head of every believer no matter what we humanly think. 
Just like we have a tendency in the world to say somebody is unworthy of Christ's deliverance from their sin, which I pray we never have that attitude. Do you realize sometimes when that ointment is being poured down from Christ, it's even being poured down upon our head. And I hope you don't miss this. When we don't deserve it. Folks, if you see the beauty of unity in a church, you have to connect it with the humility that comes by saying, this is a good and pleasant thing to actually behold and to see. It's not something we're supposed to take lightly. It's something we're supposed to gaze upon. This is supposed to be exercised in a Bible preaching church. Unity has the savor of Christ all over. It is very perfuming to the saints. It's not the stench of division when you walk into a place that's divided. And folks, that's what I'm trying to explain to you. There's a stench when there's not unity. And it isn't pleasant. It isn't good. I've seen churches in complete disunity that say, well, at least we've got the blessing of God upon us. According to what we're going to learn next week, the blessing only comes when there's unity. If we think that God is just pleased that we're assembled here together, then the verse just would have said, dwell together. That's not what it says. It says dwell together in unity. That's a big difference. How many times does the Bible speak of brotherly love? That's what's being demonstrated here. Brotherly love is compared to precious ointment because of the effects that love for one another has. That hymn we sang, brethren, we have met to worship. Let us love one another. But we will never love one another until we love Christ supremely. People try to fix the unity in their church by saying, you know what, here's what's wrong. We just got to love each other more. No, the problem is you need to love Christ supremely. That's the proper order. Remember, your union with Christ comes before your union with your church. Now let me destroy some of our preconceived notion. Your union with Christ comes before your marriage. If there's a thing I could teach our young people when they're trying to think about getting married, it's that principle right there. If that young man, that young lady does not love Christ supremely, you are already starting with disunity. That's where it starts. That's, that's where the church unity starts. That's where brethren... Remember, this is not... When he says brethren, he's not just talking about brethren in one local church on Petrie Road. He's talking about brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ should love each other this way wherever they are. When we see the effects of unity, it's compared to this ointment and these perfumes that rejoice our heart. And brotherly love does the same thing. So next week, we're going to conclude this psalm. We'll look at, at the third verse here. And again, if you, if you read ahead and you think about these things, 
kind of read through the, read through the psalm again this week and think about not only the beauty of the brethren d- d- dwelling together, the beauty of unity. Think about the brethren. But then I want us to, we'll look at next week that there's actually a blessing that David speaks about, the blessing of this unity together. All right? Let's go ahead and pray together. Our gracious Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this magnificent picture. Father, there is no human writer in his own intellect, in his own wisdom, that could write such a powerful truth than what David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote about the picture of unity and dwelling together. Father, we realize there is nothing we can do, humanly speaking, to create this environment. There's nothing we can do that if today, this very hour, this very moment, if we sit as a church that is in unity today, it is all because of the glorious grace of our Lord. But as the Apostle Paul wrote, he spoke of endeavoring to keep the spirit of unity. May we truly endeavor, may we truly desire to keep the unity. Father, I praise you and I thank you for every single individual, every family that has has come to this place, even this day. Lord, that we might hear your truth. And Lord, may we apply these things. Father, I pray now that you'll bless our time of fellowship together. May it truly be a time that edifies one another, encourages each other. And may we as brothers and sisters in Christ realize what a beautiful thing we have in this local church. And may God continue to guide us and direct us. Keep us from giving in to our fleshly desires giving ourselves over to our our human thinking and our, our, our human persuasion. And Father, I pray that this church, no matter who its members are, even generations from now, when our children, if it be your will, are here still meeting together, that they will be able to say over the years, they saw moms and dads and other people gathering together in unity. And Father, may we never take this lightly. And may Christ, as always, be glorified in and through us. And it's in Christ's name I do pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you for your attention this morning. We will see you in just a little while this morning. Thank you.